0: All right, take your Bibles, go to John chapter 13 this morning, John 13. If uh, you're newer to Harvest, you've come at a great time. We've been working through the Gospel of John uh, for more than 30 weeks now, and we're here at really kind of a watershed moment. There's a real shift in the text and even the themes that are developed change drastically as you enter into verse 31 of chapter 13 so we're going to read down through the end of the chapter we'll cover this in the next week Uh, we have a very famous passage john 14 let not your heart be troubled you believe in god believe also in me but this morning we're here at john 13 uh, verses 31 through 38 so let's read it together and then we'll try to understand what is happening here so john 13 look at verse number 31 Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So, now say I unto you. A new commandment I give unto you. That ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou uh, shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Will thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. If you've ever flown before, you know what it's like to have the captain come on the speaker system of an airplane and tell his crew to prepare for departure. What's interesting about those words is that once they're uttered, the captain does not immediately hit the jets and the airplane takes off. What happens is that there is a barrage of procedures and announcements that have to take place before there's actually a departure. They have to lock the doors. They have to check your seat belts. They have to uh, say, here's how the oxygen works. You know, don't put it on your kids before yourself. Here's the life vest, it should inflate, but if not, you know, blow on this tube, you can inflate it yourself. They have to go through all these procedures and all these announcements. I mention this because Jesus has just told his crew of 11 as, as the captain that I am going to depart But before this actually happens, there are some procedures and some announcements that need to take place. Procedurally, they're going to pray, he's going to go to the cross, and he's gonna go in a grave. Announcement-wise, that's what you get the core of the end of chapter 13, then 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all really these announcements and these new themes that surface as Jesus begins to try to prepare his disciples for departure. Now, what we find in this text contextually is that Jesus has just confronted Judas. He just told Judas, I know you. I know what's happening. I know your heart. I know you're going to betray me. He reaches out to him, gives him the sop. He, he tries to melt his heart. Judas hardens in his resolve and Judas leaves into the night to go betray Jesus. And as soon as he walks out, Jesus knows that the clock is ticking. Jesus knows that the departure of Judas will put into motion the actual machinery of his arrest of his trial, of his crucifixion. And for the next four chapters, which really cover just a few hours in the life of Jesus, he's going to try to prepare his men for when he leaves. So the question is, what does Jesus begin to say here? This is just the beginning of his announcements, but what does he say in this text? And really he says two things. He talks about glory and he talks about love. He talks about the glory specifically of the cross and the love specifically that they should have one to another. So let's talk about glory first. In the first two verses, verses 31-32, Jesus mentions glory five times. Now glory is extremely significant in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's extremely significant as John presents Jesus to us. But there is a problem with glory. The problem is that most people, even probably most of you, would struggle to define it. If I asked you to tell me about and to put words around the wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, you probably would not struggle. You could put some words around that. But if I asked you to come up here to stand next to me and to tell the audience about the glory of God, you likely would struggle to come up with how exactly to explain the glory of God. So I want to start just with some simple definition to help us understand what he's talking about when he's talking about glory to help unlock what this text really means. So let's answer this question first. What is glory? He just talked all about it. Glory, 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 glory. Hallelujah, glory, glory. No, he didn't say that. But he said glory a lot. Why, why did he say all this? What does this mean? So glory is the word doxa, which we get our word doxology from. Uh, maybe you saying the doxology in church, which is supposed to be praise and, and glory to God. Uh, but here is what glory means. I can't tell you all that it means, but I'll give you some, okay? Uh, glory can mean value and worth. So for example, we find in Matthew 4 that Jesus is tempted, and he's taken up to a high place and there he's shown all the kingdoms of the world and we're told in Matthew 4 that he is shown the glory of them. What does it mean that all these kingdoms were, were glorious? It means that they were valuable. It means that they, they were worth a lot, that there was this bartering that was taking place and, and Satan is trying to offer the most valuable thing that he can, that, that these have glory, these have value. You would find in Psalm 3, that David, when Absalom betrays him, that David writes and he says, but thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory. Okay, we know God has glory. What does it mean that God is my glory? What does it mean that God is David's glory? It means that David is looking at God and David is saying, you are infinitely valuable to me. You have more worth than anything else. I see how valuable you are in my heart and my mind. You're my glory. You're where my value lies. So glory can be value and worth. Glory can also be oftentimes beauty and brilliance. You would find this in the Christmas story. We just came out of December. Uh, Many of you probably read Luke 2 several times throughout Christmas. And you find in Luke 2 that uh, the shepherds are in the field and here come the angels and we're told that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Well, what does that mean? It means that there was this, this brilliance, this beauty that was shining. Moses had the same thing. When he went up the mountain and he came down, his face shone with glory, and, and, the, and the people couldn't look at him. And they said, veil your face. There's too much beauty. There's too much brilliance. It's too bright for us. In many ways, you could think of taking all of the characteristics and attributes of God. If you took his wisdom and his power and his mercy and his grace and his long-suffering and and you put them all together in a basket, that would kind of be his glory. It it would be as if they all shine together. The magnitude of them all is so bright and so brilliant. I love how Kim Keller uh, defined this. He said, God's glory is his beautiful, attractive, overwhelming superlativeness that leads you to give away all that you have and all that you are with joy in order to serve him because of his infinite worth. It's understanding the beauty and the brilliance, but also the the value and, and the worth of your God. And in turn, you want to give to him. Now, the question for this is, okay, that's glory. Where does Jesus say this glory will be manifest? Why all the glory talk? Why are you glory, glory, glory all of a sudden? What, why in this moment, after Judas leaves and now you have your 11 true followers with you? Well, he says it will be manifest right now. He says now's the time. If you look at the end of verse number 32, he says straightway glorify him, mean, meaning immediately the time is at hand. Now is the moment. Judas left, he set the machinery into, into motion. So now I know here, here comes the glory. Not when I ascend to heaven, Uh, not when I'm in heaven on the throne, although there is glory there, but what he's talking about is this manifestation of glory is staring me in the face. He's talking about the cross. What he's saying is that there is extreme glory in the cross. Now, admittedly, that's a little bit of a head scratcher at first because we said that glory is value and worth, right? First glance at the cross You don't entirely see that. You don't see a man who dies peacefully with his family around him in this dignified, worthy way. You see a man who is beaten, who's humiliated. The mob sneers at him, he's sandwiched in between two scoundrels. He's stripped naked, he's humiliated, he's shamed, he's powerless, nails in his hand and his feet. What could be more powerless than that? You don't see a ton of of just value there. You don't see at first glance beauty and and dazzling brightness, right? If you could get an actual glimpse of the cross, if somehow I had a a picture or, or 10 seconds of the cross to show you on the screen this morning, your first reaction would be to try to keep down your breakfast. You would not look and think gorgeous you would look and your stomach would turn. But Jesus says, this is where it's at. Now, I could understand if he said, look, you know, it's, it's a bride coming down the aisle. Like, I, I, could, I can get with that. But if you've ever gone to a wedding, you can see kind of the glory of the bride on, on that day, that there is, there, there's, there's so much value placed upon her over and above everyone else that's there. They stand for her, they honor her. There's so much beauty and brilliance in her over and above everyone else that's there. The hair and the makeup and, and, the, and the sparkle and the dress and the decorations. and There's glory there, but glory in the, in the cross? And not just glory. I, I wanna reread verses 31 and 32 because if, if you're like me, the first time you read them, you're like, what did you just say? That was a lot of hymns and a lot of glory and I don't really know what that was talking about. But let's reread it with, with this understanding. Judas goes out, now is the son of man glorified. Jesus, I'm glorified. And God, the father, is glorified in him. I'm getting glory and the father's getting glory because of this, verse 32. If God be glorified in him, if God is gonna get glory for this, God shall also glorify him in himself. Meaning, if God's getting glory from this, he's turning right back around and giving it to Jesus. And then Jesus says, and shall straightway glorify him. So that's how you know it's about the cross. What Jesus is saying. We know that there has been an exchange of glory, so to speak. The, the Father giving glory to the Son. The Son giving glory to the Father. That, that has been. Jesus has already told us this in John. That there's this two-way street of glory, as it were. But what he's saying is that now in the cross, this is going to expand into a superhighway. That now I'm getting glory, giving it to the Father. The Father's glory, giving it to me. Back and forth, back and forth. This is This is monumental. This glory. So how in the world is this glorious? My primary commentary, I, I, I read a lot of commentaries and books and try to listen to sermons on texts and those sorts of things as I prepare. But the primary one I've used for, for John is by D.A. Carson. And Carson has, it's an awesome commentary. It's big if you want to read it ever. Uh, but it sa- he says of this, the supreme moment of self-disclosure and the greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. So if we answer this question, we'll get what he's saying. How is it that the cross is the most glorious? How is it that this is opening up glory to be shared? How is it that this is so profound and so attractive and so valuable and so beautiful? There's a lot of ways I could try to explain it. I'll I'll take a crack at it briefly. If you say God is love, that would be true. But if you just say that to me or you say that to someone and try to teach them something, it's merely a proposition. Right? There's nothing concrete to that. It's just he is. It, it's, it's a hypothesis really. It's a, it's a theory. But if you show God willing to go to the cross to take on our sin out of a heart of love, you no longer have a proposition. You now have love on display. You now have the glory of God's love shining more brightly as it were. If you say God is just, it's true. But how do I really know? How do I know if He'll measure it all outright in the end? How do I know if, if vengeance will be His? How do I know that He will account for every wrong? How do I know that he really is just? How can I trust in that? How do I know that he can't just shrug off sin and let it go and wink at it? Well, it's just a proposition until you look at the cross. Until you see a God who, who is so just that he's willing to put himself on the hook, that he's willing to take the punishment on himself, that I can't, just, I can't just wish this away. It has to be dealt with, it has to be paid for, and I will go deal with it. That you see his justice now more valuable, now sparkling a bit more, Right? If you say that God is wise, it's a proposition, but if you, if you say God found a way to exhibit his love and his justice at the same time, that is infinitely wise. You and I would really struggle to do that. Try to show love and justice at the same time. For your, your kids do something wrong and they need punishment, you pretty much have to pick one. Don't you? You either have to say, you know what? I'll be merciful. I'll let it go. I love you. Or you'll say, you know what? Nope, you're wrong. Here's the punishment. Here it is. Love or justice. But God on the cross puts on display love and justice all together. And his wisdom pops. His wisdom shines. It sparkles a bit more. You see in the cross, no other religion says that God became killable, that God became vulnerable, that God needed courage to 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 go do something, but you see Jesus doing this, and and you see the the glory of courage, the glory of bravery, the glory of self sacrifice. I could go on and on. Here in the cross, you find that the glory is is more. The attributes are more. That this this makes something more of God. If that can be done, that there's more glory to be shared. That. There's, God is now more valuable and more beautiful because of this. And Jesus says, I want you to know there's glory here. There's a sense in which all of the attributes of God are, are just kind of abstractions, unless you look at the cross, unless you see someone who is infinitely beautiful, willing to be marred to such a point that you can't even recognize him, and lay down all that beauty, What could be more beautiful than that? Someone so gorgeous, so beautiful, sacrificing it all out of a heart of love for us to redeem us and to save us, that, friends, is glorious. And in the shame and the pain and in the humiliation of the cross, you find that nothing contains more glory than that. Nothing contains more glory than that. So Jesus says, look, announcement number one, guys, there's a boatload of glory coming in the cross. It's coming down the pipe right at you straight away. Announcement number two, Here's what I expect from you while I'm away. He says in verse 33, I'm leaving. I've, I've already told people I was going to go away and that they wouldn't find me. I'm telling you. He didn't say you won't find me. He says, I'm going away and you can't come right now. He tells me just a moment in verse 14, or chapter 14 that they will find him. He says, not right now. I'm going to go away and I'm going to leave you here. I'm going to depart. So here's what I want from you, love. Now the ending of this is Comical. Peter just skips right over the the love part. And is like, Lord, what'd you say about going away? Where are you going? Uh, And we'll get to that next week. But Jesus says, love. Let's look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. First question I want to ask the text is, What's new about this, right? Jesus said it was a new commandment, did he not? Yes? What's new about this? It's it's not like the first time someone told somebody to love another person, right? It's not like, you know, I I wouldn't have thought to tell my son to love my daughter if not for this verse. This has been around, Moses said this. Jesus summed up all the law. They asked him, what do you think the, the greatest of all the commandments were? You've read the Torah, what do you think the best is? He says two. First one, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Second one, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it's all about, love. So what's new about this? Well, what's new about this is a new kind of criteria that Jesus attaches to this. He says, love one another, but he says, as I have loved you. Jesus is saying, there's this glory in the cross, look at what's about to happen, but I want you to love in that way. I want to put a new gold standard on love. I want to raise the bar on love. I want to put a new premium on love. I want you to love in this way. See the magnitude of my sacrifice, see the level of my sacrifice and go exhibit this. Grasp the glory of the cross and what I'm about to do for you in love and let that fuel you, let that motivate you. Love one another as I've loved you. Now this is unbelievably simple but unusually demanding. You need to know this. This this is simple, okay? My five-year-old can get this. Love each other as I've loved you. That's not complicated. But that is very, I mean, unusually demanding for the followers of Jesus to to live this out. Now, there's a thousand implications I could give you from this, but I only have time for two because we have to take communion a little bit. We get to take communion a little bit. I'll phrase that better. Here, here are two, the most profound implications to me from this are here. First, your relationship with Jesus is personally authenticated by your love for his followers. I'm gonna say that again, I'm gonna explain it. Your relationship with Jesus is personally authenticated by your love for his followers. Jesus says by this, by what? Love for the believers. By this will all men know now when he says all men he is talking about those on the outside he's not just talking about those on the outside though he's talking about you too all men includes you here's how even you can know that you're his follower that you're a disciple here's how you can answer the question have i really been changed by jesus do, do i really know him as my savior is my faith just lip service or is it authentic is it real how do i know that something supernatural has happened to me one of the ways you can know is right here you don't have to ask yourself did i mean the prayer enough in vbs did i really know enough did i understand enough do i need to redo it do I? you can ask yourself this right here do i love the followers of jesus The way Jesus loved me, is that that in my heart? Is that being spun up? Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British pastor in the early 1900s, about 1920, 1930. But before that, he was a doctor. And Dr. Jones was a part of a culture that, especially back then, 100 years ago, uh, the British culture was extremely class-conscious you know, whether you were in poverty or whether you were in the drawing room or, you know, there really wasn't a, not a lot of middle class, but very class conscious culture. And he had finished med school. He was a doctor. He was a brilliant man and had become a man of means. He was the assistant to Lord Horder, who was at St. Bart's. Lord Horder was the physician of the royal family and he was his assistant, so he would have attended to and been around the royal family. He, he had a lot of means, and his, his career was on a massive upswing. And in, I don't know if it was the 20s or the 30s, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones got converted, he got saved. And he left the medical profession and entered into the ministry. And when he entered into the ministry, he took a church in a little, little poor church in a little poor fishing village in Wales and began to pastor there. And years later, Dr. Jones would explain in a sermon on Ephesians one that basically says the same thing as John 13, that Paul looked at the Ephesians and said, I know you're saved because you profess faith and you love the saints, that's how I know. But on that passage, Jones wrote, and he, and he said, every once in a while there's a voice that comes up internally and it talks to me and it says, you call yourself a Christian? What makes you think you're a Christian? You've been changed. You're living out the, the Holy Spirit-filled life. You've done this. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably know the voice I'm talking about. Whether that's your conscience or your mind or the devil, I don't know. But he said, that voice comes up, and what do I do with that voice? Joan said, this is what I tell that voice. He said, why would I rather talk about Jesus to the humblest, illiterate fisherwoman in this village with more joy than I have talking about medicine in a wood-paneled enclave with other members of my status in London. He says, why is it then that I would rather sit down with this lady who has nothing to offer me, has, has no money, can't even read, but I get more joy out of conversing with her about my Savior than I do sitting in this big wood-paneled room with the fire raging and these plush leather chairs and the aristocrats surrounding me talking about medicine and how smart we are. Why is it that I fit in better here? Why is it that I love this more? Why is it that I get more joy out of this? And He says, when I, when I, when I tell that voice that, it shuts up. And you know why it shut up? Because it's brilliant reasoning. See, the only reason I have a lack of class consciousness, the only reason I would rather be the, with this woman is, is not because I've done this or conjured it up, it's because I've been changed, it's because there's something in me that loves those that love Jesus. There's a common denominator there that supersedes all of the other common denominators. More than my race, more, more than my nationality, more than my gender, more than my, my socioeconomic status, more than my profession, more than all of that, there's this bond that, 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 the, that the followers of Jesus share, and I experience That and thereby, I know I'm a disciple. All men can know they're a disciple, including me, and I know I am because of that. This is a fantastic litmus test for you to know: am I saved or not? Now, I'll say this: if if you're sitting here saying, you know what, Uh, take it or leave it, I don't really care about the people around me, talk to a Christian, non-Christian at work, doesn't make a difference to me. I kind of prefer the Friday night crowd at the bar, sometimes more than the church crowd, but I need to be here. Okay, massive red flag massive. Because this is supposed to be present in the followers of Jesus. John would later write in his epistle, and he would say, this ain't new. We told you this from the beginning, that you should love one another. This has been all along. This is an indicator, a birthmark that you've been saved. So I say that to you, if you've, if you're struggling, wondering, wrestling, work this out. Ask yourself, is this present in my life? Do I, they just talked about in the video, groups, Matt said, I've enjoyed having a place where, and he said, there's people my age, yes, but there are people where we can talk about the Bible, we can talk about faith, we can share in that. Does that connect with you at all? Second implication. Now, fair warning before I give it to you. Most of the sermon has been relatively, relatively cerebral, okay? And my goal is to punch you in the gut purposely with this. I hope it does. I hope, I hope it scares the fire out of you and I hope that it, it shakes you to some degree. Second implication. If the world has been turning away from Christianity, the first place Christians should look is in the mirror. Now I say if the world, okay, we know that the world is, at least our society, okay? You just have to look at stats, There's a greater percentage of Americans away from Christianity and and away from the faith year by year by year than there are moving towards the faith. So what do we do with that? We look in the mirror and we look at ourselves, particularly the quality of relationships amongst believers inside the church. First and foremost there. Jesus says, verse 33, I'm going away. I'm departing. I'm gone. And... The thought is that when I was here, everyone could see my love. Everyone could see my glory. Everyone could see that I was the son of God. But after I leave, they no longer see me. They no longer see me. How are they going to know the supernatural reality of the incarnate Christ? How are they going to know that this was real? How are they gonna know that this is authentic? The quality of love amongst believers. Now this, this should make sense. If you're a Christian, and you want to find out if someone else is a Christian, you could just ask them, are you a Christian? Yes, but sometimes there's a lot of people that say I'm just a Christian, just kind of throw that out there, right? If you wanna go a little bit deeper and find out, you're gonna softly prod and you're gonna start to ask questions like these that are theological. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins to pay for them? Do you believe that he was buried and that he supernaturally rose from the dead on the third day? You're gonna start to ask those theological questions. If the world wants to know if you're a Christian, would it be reasonable to expect them to ask you those questions? No. How do they know about vicarious substitution? How do they even know the story of Jesus? How, how do they know what to ask you? How do they know what a believer should believe? They're not a believer. They don't know. If you expect a believer to be like, hey, are you a Christian? Well, then do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died vicariously, rose again the third day, and is seated at the right hand of the God after, after he ascended to heaven? If you expect them to ask you that? Ne- it's never gonna happen. A non-believer will try to discover if you are a believer just how Jesus said they would they will look at your relationships, specifically the relationships you have with other Christian believers. If they look and see, you know what? My Christian neighbors or the two people at work that profess to be Christian or those people that you go to church with, you fight just as much, you gossip just as bad, you are are just as unforgiving You have just as much relational turmoil at your Christian Christmas candlelight, whatever it is afterwards, as I do at my non-Christian family hangout. You argue just as much, they're going to think that's trash, and rightfully so, and that should frighten you. That should frighten me. If they look at the church and see the church more segregated on a Sunday morning than the world is at large on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and that those relationships operate more poorly inside the church than outside the church, they have, I think, based on the words of Jesus, the right to say, yeah, right. Nope. Don't believe it. Jesus says this is how they're going to know. And if you're a Christian, don't pass the buck and don't blame shift. If the world's moving away from Christianity, the first thing that you and I in Harvest Baptist Church needs to do is to ask ourselves, what are we doing that is not right? Don't blame shift it. Well, the devil's working overtime. Well, those politicians, if they, would just, if they would just follow our Judeo-Christian values that were on, from the onset, those were there, and they're eroding at the foundation. Well, if the Supreme Court would just rule in, in a way that lined up with morality and, and, and wasn't so relative about all this and they understood the Constitution, well, if doctrine was still important in the church, well, if, if my, my kids, you know, pastor, he wears skinny jeans now and America's going to hell in a handbasket because of that, don't blame shift that. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that that those things are untrue and they don't have their place. I'm saying the first place to look is in the mirror. And if we cannot live out authentic, unbelievable relationships, then, then don't go any further. Just stop there. Just stop there. This is supposed to be very simple, but very demanding. This is supposed to have real life implications. The world can be critical of what I believe. I'm fine with that. I learned to get over that a long time ago, but I hope at the same time they're envious of my relationships inside the church. I hope a lot of you all have been to our house. If you've never been to my house, let me know. We'll have you over to our house. We have lots of people over in the summertime. Uh, We'll get you over sometime, but we have people over. I hope my neighbors see that there's something weird (laughs) happening there. I don't mean weird cultish. I mean weird like, whoa, I didn't know. That's just different in a good way. I hope they see, I hope they're envious and jealous of that. They should. There should be something real there. Here's, here's the question you should ask yourself. I'll give you a takeaway, okay? Take that relationship that you're having tor- turmoil with, that you haven't figured out, family, Christian coworker, especially Christian relationships, okay, uh, uh, inside the church, whatever. What does the love of Jesus require of me in this scenario? What does the love of Jesus require of me? I can't stand up here and work out all the potential relationship issues that you're having right now and give you an answer to every single one and take them case by case and here's what I would do and here's what I would say and I wouldn't text them, I'd write them a letter, blah, blah, blah. blah. I can't do all that. I can tell you this and you, I bet you intuitively know the answer. What does the love of Jesus require of you? Can you do this? Can you love them as Christ loved you? You say, Well, how far is too far? Pastor, if you only knew how hurt it was, how how egregious it was, how how barbaric it was, if you only knew who they really were at their core. At the epicenter of the Christian faith is a man who dies covered in his own blood and the saliva of other men. If you go past that, send me an email and then I'll give you advice. But until you go past that, it's not too far. You love as he loved. Listen, this is going to sound alarming to some of you, but it'll be good for you. I hope in 2020 that you have made some resolutions to read your Bible more. About, I don't know, 40 or 50 of you are in the Bible reading plan on our little app or whatever it is that we're doing. And that's been a ton of fun. I hope you made some resolutions to pray more. I hope maybe you, you made some resolutions with relationships and that you want to get in a group uh, this January, this February and start to even work some of this out practically. That's what I'm, I hope that you have. But you can read your Bible and pray and get back in church all you want. If you do not work this out, if this does not connect with you, if there's not love for other believers, you've missed the point. You missed the point. You're completely disconnected from what you should be connected to. You can't say, you can't say, God, I love you. I praise you. You're my glory. I love you. But man, I can't stand them. Jesus, I love you so much, but I hope that they don't sit next to me. I hope they're not next to me in choir. I'm not serving on that nursery team with them. You can't do that. Jesus doesn't allow it. Here's how you're going to know. Here's how they're going to know. Here's how the world's going to look and see. What's the quality of relationships amongst believers? Is it better than what they would normally have? Does it look different? Is there love being expressed? There has to be. There has to be. I'll say this in closing. I don't try to punch you in the gut because I feel like Harvest, you know, we're losers at this. I'm not saying that. This is, God is my witness. This is the most loving, unified bunch of people that I've ever been a part of when it comes to a church. And I've been a part of some good churches. I really have. Harvest is unique in a good way when it comes to this. I love the love that we have. But don't think for a second that we can just kick our feet up in a recliner and everything's going to be okay and that we don't have to work at this. Don't think for a second that we don't, that we don't have room to grow in this there's not more to happen. And don't, don't give yourself a loophole and an exclusion. Well, you know what? I love 95% of believers, but there's that 5% eh. Don't tell yourself, well, you know what? There's that radio preacher. You know, I listen to them on the radio all the time. I've never met them face to face. I could barely describe what they look like. And they live five states away. And I really love him or her. So, so they're, they're my favorite. I love them. That means I love other believers. No, you don't get a hall pass on that. Look at the people in this room. Look at the Christians you work with. Well, they're of a different denomination. Well, they don't exactly believe the same word. Come on. That's where the love has to be manifest. That's, that's where it really gets heavy. That's where it gets difficult. You have to work it out there. Jesus says, no bones about it, very, very clear. Here's how, you're gonna, here's how they're going to know. You have loved one to another. As I've loved you. Last clarifier. Some of you are thinking, well, Jesus already said love everybody, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor's everybody. So, I mean, this is redundant. No. He's not saying stop loving your neighbor, but he's putting a, a deeper premium on this. Paul would reiterate these words in Galatians 6, and he would say, let us do good to all men, especially them that are of the household of faith. Jesus is saying love everybody, but especially those that we're related to. If they're God's child and you're God's child, you share the same daddy, get along with them. You're in the same family. Love them. My, my hope, my hope is that we can look at this text and not soon forget it and that we can have a love for each other that is fueled by the glory of the cross. That we look and see his love, his sacrifice, what, what he did for us, what he put up with, I mean, right in this text, he puts up with Peter, who's an ignoramus in this text. What he put up with, and we love, and we sacrifice, and we put up with, and we live that out on a day-to-day basis.